0: what the net zero framework does and what the transition accelerator's way of thinking does is make you realize that the decisions you make today need to be looking at net zero in 2050. Yes. It's no longer this incremental emission reduction approach. And so that means um, you're just a very different way of operating. And that's really, for us, success is seeing, you know, more people recognizing that, more organizations, businesses, governments aligning themselves around that kind of uh, systems change thinking.
1: Welcome to The Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 058, number 58 of The Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having on the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee, during a taxi ride, over dinner, or stuck in an airport departure lounge. This podcast was recorded live and in 3D. The background noise you hear is Globe Forum 2022 in Vancouver. Now, on to today's podcast and today's guest.
0: Bruce Laurie, President of Ivy Foundation and Chair of the Transition Accelerator.
1: At the Globe Forum, much of the discussion has been about the transition to the energy system of the future. Bruce joined me in the break area outside the conference's plenary session to chat about the Transition Accelerator its role in promoting pathways for the energy transition, the coal phase-out in Ontario, which constituted the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas reductions in Canada, the urgent need for collaboration between levels of government, the future role of hydrogen, and the challenges of meeting the short timelines of 2030 GHG reduction targets. I also asked Bruce about his book, Slow Death by Rubber Duck. And we close with his recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Dr. Bruce Lurie recorded late March, 2022. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Delighted that we're able to have a chance to chat.
0: Yeah, me too, thank you.
1: And to put it in context for the listener, uh, here we are at the GLOBE Forum for the first time in over two years uh, in a face-to-face meeting. Uh, and also for the listener, it is two weeks after the Government of Canada had uh, issued the discussion paper on the Clean Electricity Standard. And yesterday the Prime Minister was here at GLOBE and he talked about um, the emissions reduction plan. So. Uh, maybe we can chat a little bit about that, but maybe start with a uh, transition accelerator, just for the listener, what the transition accelerator
0: is. Sure, yeah. So the idea is that we, I think, you know, as a country, as businesses, as provinces, need to figure out what are the pathways that are most likely to get us to where we need to get to in 2050, so a net zero 2050. So we think very much in terms of know these um, kind of like energy system pathways, or um, you know business system pathways, and it's becoming increasingly clear that there are some very obvious things that we need to be doing. So we need to be building out a hydrogen economy in Canada. We need to figure out how we actually retrofit and electrify buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to uh, focus on you know expanding and modernizing the electricity grid, as well as. You know, decarbonizing the existing electricity supply. So there are so those are say three or four big things mm-hmm. that we need to get done. And our view is at the Transition Accelerator, um, and we bring a particular methodology to this to really trying to understand these systems. You know, energy systems, business systems. There's also social and political systems, of course, that um, are important. And then imagine where we need to get to, and then how we build the systems to get us there. Right. And that might mean you know, different kinds of technologies, different kinds of organizations, different business models, governance structures. And so what we're trying to do is put all of those together, but very focused on these big transition pathways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is a charity.
0: It is. Yeah. So
1: how did that come together? Uh, yeah,
0: so it's um, yeah, it's set up as a, as a charitable organization so that um, the organization receives funds from everything from businesses to private philanthropy, which typically private philanthropy only funds charities okay. um, as well as governments. Yeah, so the Transition Accelerator came about in conversations that we were having with three people that were, I think, all trying to think through what does a transition to net zero look like? Mm -hmm. And um, those people are Normand Mousseau at the Trottier Energy Institute in Montreal, James Meadowcroft at Carleton in uh, Ottawa, and David Lizal at the University of Calgary. And Normand's a physicist, James a political scientist, and David's an energy systems uh, modeler and and, uh, designer. And um, so, th- so the whole idea is to bring this kind of sophisticated thinking and the development of a methodology that, uh, that basically helps support the transition. So working with businesses, working with governments, working with NGOs. And um, through our conversations, uh, that group developed a methodology. And then, um, and then really we just thought this, this was deserving of its own independent organization to uh, um, really to help... Um, uh, work with, as I said, work with businesses and uh, governments, but also really get the get the thinking and you know mobilize the knowledge around how can we transition most effectively, most cost effectively. How do we make sure that we involve the right people? So, so it's really um, all about kind of bringing people together around these big transition pathways methodologies.
1: So that wasn't happening. There wasn't that uh, was that was a, that was a, a gap. We,
0: yeah, we didn't see exactly. Yeah, a big part of the work that we do um, at the Ivy Foundation, what we've essentially done over the last ten years, is try to identify what we see as gaps in the ecosystem of groups that are working on these issues, and um, uh, just a, so a couple of examples, we we were actively involved in. Um, you know, and helping with uh, uh, Efficiency Canada getting it up and running, right. the Institute for Sustainable Finance, yep. um, the Eco Fiscal Commission. So our sense was that Canada actually didn't have the um, the research capacity, the institutional capacity to think through the big new kind of disruptive challenges, or not even just disruptive challenges, but the um, uh, the actual things that we need to do as a country to get where we need to get to, and so we looked at, for example, the different kinds of think tanks and organizations in the U.S. Yeah. and the U.K. and in okay. Europe, okay. and really we really found that Canada was lacking some of the same capabilities. So you know we've got business groups, we've got government, we have traditional NGOs, but we were missing these kind of uh, you know interlocutors that pull it all together and uh, are you know independent and analytically rigorous.
1: Was there a, a specific? international uh, example or, or an example in another country that served as a model or did you kind of take from a number and build from the ground up
0: yeah not yeah that's a very good question um, a number of the other things we worked on or were, were um, almost uh, almost direct uh, copies of what we saw happening in other countries mm-hmm. the transition accelerator a little less so yeah. um, there is an organization um, that we've been um, working with. It's an international group, based in the UK, called mm-hmm. the Energy Transitions Commission, I believe. Okay. Um, ETC, and um, uh, and that uh, that group is somewhat similar. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more um, maybe led from the top by by business interests, but. Okay. But adopting very similar kind of thinking, similar kinds of research, which is which is basically this um, like rigorous analysis of uh, of these net zero transition pathways. So mm-hmm. I would say that's the closest globally that we've seen.
2: Yeah.
1: One of the things, Bruce, that, that I ask people that come onto the podcast is uh, about their journey. Uh, it's it's something that with the first couple of podcasts, um, uh, I, I did have people ask me about that. So, uh, what, what was your journey when you, I always make the joke when you were a young lad in the, in the playground, is this what you dreamed of doing? Uh, and then, and then what was kind of your, your journey to, to your role today, uh, at the transition yeah. center and, and at the Ivy
2: Foundation?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess without giving you the uh, lengthy, lengthy, uh, story, um, you know, I have a degree in geology and I was working for a mining company in northern Manitoba. Okay. And, um, and we were very actively, you know, involved out doing exploration, you know, in the boreal forest far, far north Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And I think for, uh, for several of us, you know, we were students at the time, it was very striking to see how extraordinarily untouched the wilderness was. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely beautiful and the fish in the lakes and moose, it was stunning. Um, and then at the mine site um, this was you know this is going back a lot of years now you know maybe 40 years ago um, there were basically no environmental regulations hmm. uh, like it was really shocking hmm. so the tailings from the mills just went straight out into rivers and right. lakes and the you know the forests were destroyed and the, it was just like such an obvious eyesore yeah. and that was really at the point where the environmental movement was um, I guess kind of you know getting going or been going for a little while mm-hmm. um, and I thought okay well this kind of doesn't make sense to me why right? like you know I get that you know mining's important I have a geology degree I understand that but surely we could be doing a better job of trying to protect the environment. So I was debating doing a master's in you know geology or a master's in uh, and then you this master's in environmental studies program at York University sort of popped mm-hmm. up. And I thought, oh, that mm-hmm. looks interesting. Okay. So I did that and, um, and then ended up, uh, and I guess I thought, you know, to be honest, the consistency maybe is, I always found that there wasn't enough analytical rigor in how people were dealing with environmental issues, together with a, a really legitimate um, concern that mm-hmm. the environment was important. So there are people that, you know, the analytical people were kind of just working on business and, um, and the environmental community didn't really seem to have the, you know, scientific rigor behind, you know, some of the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. So my goal was really to try to bring analytical rigor to solving environmental problems and also realizing that we needed, um, large groupings of people at the table representing different interests. So this was so oddly enough, um, you know, and then I set up a consulting company basically to do that. And, um, and then I just started working with the energy sector, with electricity companies, with federal and provincial governments, with NGOs, foundations, and I just really, you know, enjoy getting people together in rooms to try to figure out how to solve problems. And that's ultimately, um, I think, what the Ivy Foundation uh, was interested in, the skill they were interested in, and I've been there for, uh, uh, for close to 20 years now, mm-hmm. basically, with a fabulous uh, opportunity to mm-hmm. really put that into action in the country, so... Yep.
1: And decarbonization, uh, this is this is not something that you've just recently come to.
0: No, I was, um, in fact, uh, one of the very first things I did as a young consultant in my consulting company was um, work on a, on a study in Ontario. It was called Degrees of Change, 1992. Yep. And it was a, um, a climate plan for the province of Ontario. So here we are, 2022. Yep. Um, Exciting that we were doing it in 1992. A little depressing that a lot of the things that we said in 1992 are we're still debating 30 today, years later, <laughs> yeah. thirty years later. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I recall the study. Yeah, one. well, yeah. So I, I um, and I ended up working with some really outstanding people um, at the time. Um, uh, um, you know, Phil Jessup, who was you know active, and Ralph. Um, uh, Ralph Tory and so I got you know exposed to these really great early leaders in climate policy and uh, and then was able to build a successful business out of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that that led to the single most uh, significant reduction in carbon emissions in Canada.
0: The the coal phase out. Coal yeah. Phase out so so yeah. basically yeah it was soon after um, after that when um, uh, when in fact, as, as a consultant, I mean, my 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 side of the story is, um, I was actually doing a combination of studies. I was doing a lot of work on mercury pollution at the time, mm-hmm. and I was doing work on smog and acid rain and on climate change. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at all of these studies, and I thought. Um, to myself okay well we've got you know we need to get rid of mercury
1: exactly the environmental yeah. groups are yeah. like
0: okay well we've got a campaign against smog we've got yeah. a campaign against acid rain we've got a campaign on you know emerging on climate change we're trying to deal with mercury and i was thinking wait a minute okay the sources of all of those things mm-hmm. top three pretty much are coal plants and yeah. so I thought why um why is everyone trying to work on all of the substances coming out of the coal plants as independent right. things? Yep. Let's just focus on coal plants. And, um, and so again, we did a lot of uh, analysis. We looked at the coal plants in Ontario. We realized that, um, um, that you know, Ontario, you know, unlike say Nova Scotia or the, the West, um, you know, we don't have any coal mines. So mm-hmm. there wasn't that issue to deal with. A yep. lot of the coal plants were super old and, you know, were yeah. past their life. Yeah lifespan so they need to re- be replaced with something anyway. Um, and then we realized once we connected the, the um, emissions to air quality and the health costs right. and um, we got the Ontario Medical Association involved and supported their research. Um, on this. And uh, and then the, the provincial government um, under Dalton McGuinty was very supportive of it. And so it all came together quite quickly. But yeah, but thanks for asking that. As, um, um, I'm kind of very proud of that uh, mm-hmm. um, that campaign. And I learned a lot. And um, and it was, I think, a good example where um, some really smart people, rigorous economic analysis, all of the health cost analysis yeah. that yeah. was done, um, made it very convincing to people that this was the right way to go.
1: Yeah. I was taking a look this, this morning at the Emissions reduction plan that the government uh, uh, put out yesterday, and I thought specifically of uh, that's why I wanted to, to 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 chat with you about it because when you look at the charts of sector by sector emissions from 2005 to 2019, you see most sectors are yeah, you know this yeah. uh, up <clears throat> slightly in in most cases and electricity there's this enormous drop of 40 yeah, percent yeah and yeah, it is it, the, almost entirely. Uh, at least up until, you know, a couple of years ago due to what happened in
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And also, if you look at a graph of um, provincial greenhouse gas emissions... Yeah, yeah, you yeah, see, by You see pretty much flat lines, little, you know, a big increase in Alberta and then a giant decrease in Ontario, yeah. and that was Endormous. all the coal plants, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so, wow. yeah, very exciting and uh, um, certainly something where really... Um, I learned a lot in terms of, you know, how you can actually... Mm-hmm work with people, work with business, work with government and, uh, and, you know, move big ideas forward.
1: Right. So speaking of big ideas, uh, let's get back to the, the transition accelerator. Uh, what are, what are some of the, 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 biggest learnings so far out of the, out of the work over the last four years?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna focus on three things mm-hmm. one is uh, I think hydrogen is going to play an important yep. and specific role in Canada's transition and so the work that the transition accelerator has done particularly in Alberta has really identified the um, opportunity for Alberta to continue to be a North American leader in the supply of heavy-duty vehicle transportation fuels mm-hmm. namely you know hydrogen so Right now, they're you know a big, big provider of diesel fuel. Yep. They can stay in the game in the North American market by becoming uh, you know a, an important North American supplier and exporter of um, hydrogen for uh, for long haul freight transport, and this could apply also to rail and uh, and mm-hmm. shipping. So I think that's you know that's um, something that the research has really highlighted, and and to con- continue to keep Alberta kind of in yeah. the energy game.
2: Yeah,
0: um, I would say another one is. The importance of uh, of really looking at um, expanding, modernizing, and um, uh, and almost or like reinventing, but you know, really focusing on the electricity grid mm-hmm. in this country. And um, you know, I think we uh, as uh, as a country, given that we're something like eighty three percent decarbonized in the electricity sector, we've got you know, I I think about electricity as you know this. Um, you know, kind of having three points on a, on a triangle you've got reliability, mm-hmm. sustainability and cost. Yep. And Canada, if you compare us to virtually any country in the world we're doing about as well or better than anybody in all terms all of those three, three things, things yep, right three And three so that's the challenge. there's yeah. cheap, cheap electricity that emits a lot there's unreliable electricity but we Canada really has done a great job. Mm-hmm. and so um, uh, so that's a great story and we also have you know fantastic people working in the sector. But uh, I think it's left us a little complacent about mm-hmm. how much work needs to be done you know, between now and 2030 or 2050. Yep. And, um, and we're still you know, a little bit too provincial in all meanings of that world, <laughs> word, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, of, I think, the need to think about you know, inter-regional cooperation, you know, more inter-ties. you know, The Atlantic Loop is a great example of, uh, I think, the government trying to figure some of that out in in the Atlantic provinces but I think there's significant opportunities between BC and Alberta between Saskatchewan and Manitoba to increase mm-hmm. inner ties help decarbonize and ultimately what 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 you get with a um, uh, a larger integrated coordinated electricity system is greater reliability greater mm-hmm. sustainability yeah, sure. and ultimately in the overall system lower cost for everybody right. and so if you look at the u.s um, with all of the uh, Um, you know, reliability councils and uh, independent system or, uh, you know, system operators across jurisdictions, you know, they understand that. You look in um, southern Australia, they're doing it. Europe, they're doing it. In Canada, we're still kind of, you know, every province looking after themselves. Mm. And I think we've got to look at more coordination. Um, And it doesn't mean... uh, uh, you know, changing what the provinces are doing, but what it means is, you know, I, in my view anyway, is having some kind of regional collaborative processes that help us do long-term electricity system planning, yeah. while understanding the benefits of uh, combining and matching resources across jurisdictions, rather than just looking within individual provinces. So I think that's, I think that's something that's really come out of this, and. And connected to that is uh, this idea that we aren't going to be able to get to our electric vehicle um, targets or our electrification of building targets Mm -hmm. if we don't have this much bigger um, and I would say, you know, more sophisticated modern electricity grid. So those are, I think, three big things that we've kind of uh, landed on.
1: Yeah. Can I I just come back to to that second one, because that's um, that one uh, from... Previous conversations that that I've had with people on the podcast seems to be the 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 more challenging one because of uh, the uh, politics yes. of it. Yeah. Um, and I know through the Transition Accelerator and through Canada Grid, one of one of the initiatives on the accelerator, you've been uh, sparking uh, conversations. There was Grid, uh, the Grid Days. Good days. Yep. Uh, earlier, uh, earlier this year, that uh, that were some really terrific conversations and, and, uh, and some real good dialogue. Are you getting traction? Do you think? Because this is not a
2: yeah, an issue yeah, for yeah.
1: for for policymakers necessarily in Ottawa. It's as you say, it's 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 individual provinces.
0: Yeah, I would say. I mean, the one. How, well, maybe yeah. How,
1: Like, yeah. And are there things that that you've learned from looking at Australia and looking at some of the regions? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Very much so. Okay. I think. Um, uh, I guess a couple of uh, a couple of things there. Um, uh, there is definitely a lot of interest um, across the board for people wanting to have this conversation. So whether they're, um, you know, companies that are in the business of building out electricity systems or supply, the software companies, the demand response companies, um, we've got uh, partnerships now um, with uh, uh, indigenous communities, with uh, labor, finance sector. So there's, it's it's definitely building. It, it is. Um, it, one of the things that frustrates me is uh, the reaction sometimes that we get is, "Oh, this is too political. Mm. I'm not going to bother," or "This is so yeah. complicated. It's, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be part of it." Gotcha. And it's like, mm. it's like, well, that's why we would like you to be part of it because it is complicated and it is political, and we have to kind of break through right. some of that. And I think businesses have a real voice. In helping break through some of the political stuff, and so I worry a little bit when businesses are are, are afraid that the politics are such that it means they don't want to participate. Right. I think the um, another signal I think of the transaction, which um, you mentioned the uh, the ERP, the emission reduction plan that was just announced here yesterday. Um, there is uh, reference to electricity grid modernization, yep. electrification, and specifically um, the creation of and support for a pan-Canadian grid council. Yes. I think um, I'm very interested to see uh, you know what that might look like, what the government's thinking, and of course we all know, for those of us that work in the sector. Um, having the federal government try to tell provinces what to do isn't going to work.
1: That that, that really doesn't (laughs) work well, and it
0: really doesn't work well in the electricity sector. So this needs to be, I think, a very uh, carefully constructed conversation that brings people to the table. But I think the benefit of the federal government's involvement is that they have a reason to bring people to the table. They've made these commitments internationally, um, interprovincial, you know, interties, you know, often involve uh, either federal money or, or federal approvals. Mm-hmm. So this, this legitimates a federal role, um, but my hope is that the provinces, you know, some of, the, um, some of the Crown utilities, regulators, and others will see this as an opportunity to have a conversation. Right, so it's really the starting point is having a conversation about what what different kinds of um, say collaborative models of electricity planning might look like, um, and it's in no way you know usurping the jurisdiction or authority of the individual provinces. It's just really bringing them into a higher level conversation of regional planning. That's my mean anyway, That's my personal thought on it, and we'll see where uh, where the where the governments go, but. But there's there's a lot of interest. There's a real recognition that there's a challenge uh, in this country that uh, al- many of the electricity system decisions are, are um, I would say, viewed as overly politicized. And um, so I think there is a desire, particularly among business, to you know increase and open up transparency, open up um, opportunities to build more, to attract investment, and often. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, if, if uh, say, um, potential uh, banks or other financiers think that this is going to get bogged down in some kind of political, mm-hmm. you know, morass, then they won't come to the table either. So we really have to, in this country, understand that, you know, the politics of electricity are holding us back.
1: Yeah. So the, the federal role could be... Um using its bully pulpit, it could be as a convener, it could be federal spending power, yep.
0: or are there other things? Yeah, all, all those. of those. Um, I think it's all of the above, uh, helping do, we, we. I think there is a lot of uh, research and analysis that really is needed to understand, you know, what are the most um, promising economic opportunities around expansion, around clean supply, right. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the federal government has uh Resources, you know, both people and dollars that they can be uh, using to help with that. So, I uh, the way I see it is there needs to be like for all of our work, like at the Transition Accelerator, you know, an analytical basis that is rooting a conversation in, you know, in something that's you know real and meaningful. And so, I see the federal government being able to play a role in, you know, helping with that analytical understanding. And I, I see them playing this role right now in Atlantic Loop. So, I think they do have. Um, a model uh, that they can build on and then they have the convening power and mm-hmm. at the end of the day you know we know the uh, Canada Infrastructure Bank has a whole lot of money and so there's you know there's a, there's a, there's a very very genuine role for the federal government in this.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay great. Hey, there's a couple of other things I, I, yep. I wanted to touch on as well but, but first can we talk about um, slow death by rubber duck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put a link on the on the show page. Oh, uh, oh, thanks. To, uh, yeah, to your book.
0: yeah, but, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, can you can you just uh, uh, just chat yeah. about so, that? Yeah, so um, that that was one. That's not the only book you wrote, but that's yeah. the one that, uh, that that I've seen.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that certainly was uh, was the biggest uh, the biggest hit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's fun. It's still so we I wrote it with my colleague Rick Smith, who's now the um, uh, CEO of the Climate Institute, Canadian Climate Institute. Yep. And uh, Rick and I wrote that uh maybe twelve years ago now, I would say. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's Re- fine Re- I still tenth anniversary. Yeah, yeah exactly, tenth well. anniversary edition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and it's fine. It's still got legs. I still have people calling. I had someone call me from the UK uh, the other day. They're doing a documentary on endocrine disrupting chemicals and microplastics, and you know, wanted to get me involved. Um, you know, we do talks on it. It just got now. It's uh, it's just it's eighth or ninth translation. It just got picked up in Germany, so it's in. Um, you know South Korean Chinese German Polish Swedish like so it's it was a bestseller in the US a bestseller in Australia like really really fun like it was a great 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 experience and really what we were trying to do mm-hmm. is raise awareness around these um, uh, you know you know essentially endocrine disrupting chemicals um, which are chemicals largely uh, that we find in plastics mm-hmm. but those but the story that we're telling is, that um, that these plastics and these chemicals are are spread through everything that we use, mm-hmm. right? So they're in our food, they're in the you know fabric that we can see here on the carpets, they're in um,
1: cash register receipts, cash
0: register receipts, oh, yeah. the plastic yeah. bottles, um, uh, you know Teflon nonstick mm-hmm. linings, uh, mm-hmm. flame retardants that get sprayed in clothing, like they're just they're sort of everywhere, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, and it's kind of, it. it I, you know, our argument is that it got out of control in terms of the number of these different chemicals, which, you know, whatever it is, like 86,000 chemicals in use today or something. Um, very few of them have ever been tested adequately on effects on human health. Mm. And so the idea, I mean, the way basically it works is, you know, a scientist finds a chemical that's got an interesting property. Someone goes, oh, that's cool. We could make money off of that. Okay, <laughs> let's put it in this product. Yeah. And then oh, gee, that's not, you know, very good. We find that, you know, burning Teflon at high temperatures causes, basically releases, um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, nerve gas, which, um, you know, if you have a bird in your house and you turn your Teflon pan on high, your bird will die. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not, this isn't just, you know... uh, you know, um, uh, you know something that's just so unusual that you don't really find health effects. So, and then we're seeing all of these different. Really, what we're focusing on is all the different health effects that um, we can't quite explain. So, like increases in, um, you know, things like ADHD or even childhood obesity mm-hmm. connected to these. Uh, to these chemicals. Um, obviously, they're directly connected to lots of cancers. Um, so all of the stuff that we're seeing that people are having trouble understanding, yeah. um, there are studies that are suggesting that these chemicals in all of these, you know, everyday consumer products mm-hmm. are contributing to to mm-hmm. those health problems. Um, infertility, uh, like, so there's all, all sorts of things going on, behavioral disorders and things. So um, and, and they can't quite, like, it's not, you know, 100% causal relationship, because it's very complex to connect someone's exposure to a certain thing and a very particular outcome in that person. But what we're seeing through epidemiological studies is the increasing these things, um, basically matching the increased use. And even countries that are more developed, that are using more of these products with chemicals, tend to have more of the health effects related to those chemicals than, say, countries that um, aren't using the same you know, North American, let's say, products that we use. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, It was again, I guess maybe there's a theme here that you're drawing out I hadn't thought of, but it's a lot of analysis mm-hmm. to try to understand deeply what is the problem. And then um, for, for me, uh, figuring out how you can write about it or work with people and explain it in a way that, like a big part of this was really translating complex science mm-hmm. in a way that was, you know, the book's kind of humorous and... You know we do experiments on ourselves and you know we have fun writing the book um, but it's you know it's a very serious story but yes. done in a lighthearted hearted way yeah. uh, and rooted in a lot of analysis a lot of interviews mm-hmm. reading a lot of studies so it's kind of that science translation piece that I, I really find interesting
1: there's a, a probably a, a, a better a simpler word for it in French to yeah. talk about vulgarité. To, to take something that's very complex. And oh, okay. Oh, I yes.
0: don't even know. I don't think we even have that word in English, do we? No, we yeah. don't. Yeah. No, no, which,
1: which is why every now and then I'll, I'll pop it out, and I'd have to explain it. Yeah. No, it doesn't quite translate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, that's a very good uh, expression. Yeah.
1: So uh, I did want to go back to one of the other things you talked about, and that was uh, hydrogen, because I know that that's been a, a significant in terms of the sort of the, the vision uh, of what the future may look like you talked about Al- alberta and um and it, it uh, has the opportunity to play a significant role in the future so uh, i i'm going to bring somebody onto the podcast at some point to, to do a deep dive into hydrogen uh, but one of the things that i keep hearing from people is well there's green hydrogen mm-hmm. and then there's blue hydrogen yeah and then yeah i'm not sure what other colors of hydrogen
0: it's gray, there's brown, there's... Yeah, cool. yeah, and they yeah. all have different, slightly yeah. different
1: spins on them. Yeah, yeah, and So, yeah. so what is the, the the Alberta's future in the hydrogen space? That's not green, yeah. it's the blue...
2: It's
0: yeah, the, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, it, uh, I mean, we, to be honest, we try to stay away from, you know, color-coding hydrogen, mm-hmm. but... You know just to be clear for people listening so the simple definition blue hydrogen is hydrogen that's manufactured from natural gas that combines carbon capture and storage gotcha. so the carbon that's produced uh, or the sorry the um the carbon that comes off of the hydrogen production gets stored so mm-hmm. you've got maybe um you know uh i think up to like a 90 percent carbon reduced fuel at the end of the day mm-hmm. then of course carbon capture and storage is still um not not entirely uh, uh, economic today so there's some question like legitimate question around that Um, and uh, although I think maybe some of the stuff we saw in the uh, ERP might help with that Mm -hmm. Um, and then blue hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced from uh, electrolysis so using electricity a green hydrogen hydrogen, sorry uh, using electricity to um, uh, break down water into hydrogen and oxygen so that's that's the pure Perfect hydrogen that we're looking for down the road, and so I focus on Alberta. But if you look at Quebec, for example, as a jurisdiction that's, as you know, we all know is um, right now uh, all you know zero zero producing, zero emitting um, uh, hydroelectricity then uh, they have an opportunity to get into the green hydrogen business and it's the kind of thing, and really this is what I think is going to be most fascinating and uh, our our colleague David Laisal who leads our hydrogen work talks about hydricity which is this idea of the interplay between hydrogen and electricity. Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges with renewable electricity, intermittent renewable electricity is, is you can't store it, Yes. but you can store it in hydrogen. Yeah. And so you can actually use hydrogen as a storage and you can make it mobile. So yeah. the other challenge that, you it know, is, yeah, we, we hear a lot is, the you long know,
1: duration battery doesn't right, exist. Right. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, exactly and and also you can't um, you know, you, you can't um, you know, turn elect, um, uh, you can't you can't oh. make electricity a mobile fuel in yeah. the same way that yeah. you accept through a battery or through hydrogen. So hydrogen in fact is is essentially another way of storing electricity in Effectively, like a battery, mm-hmm. um, and so that's how our you know our view is that uh, long haul freight trucking will likely be based on hydrogen yep. for that very reason because yep. the batteries are, um, and again this is this is we'll see where you know who who which technology wins out. Um, it's kind of a um, was it a beta? What was the other uh, you know the VCR? Uh,
1: oh yeah, that's right. You yep, know yeah. debate
0: like yep. you know you've got the VHS, you got the VHS, VHS and beta. VHS and beta. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we'll see uh, which one wins out at the end of the day. But right now, um, based on the analysis that we've done, it looks like the size of the batteries that are going to be required and the weight of those batteries to move yeah. to, for a transport truck to haul a load 1,200, 1,300 kilometers, like they do today, right. basically they would just be pulling around a giant battery. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so hydrogen, you know, solves that problem. Um, I think. Um, I think, so the so the way we look at it, it's called a transition accelerator, is we need to start building the hydrogen infrastructure, and it has to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right now, green hydrogen is very expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the transition that we're seeing is starting off with blue hydrogen, starting to build, basically, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? Yep. Like, yep. no one is going to build a hydrogen truck if they can't fill up hydrogen somewhere, yep, and no one's going to build a hydrogen fueling station so if there are no trucks. <laughs> so, this is where we're stuck right now, mm-hmm. and so this has got to be an iterative process. This is where government funding also mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. comes into play, because there needs to be support for that initial hydrogen infrastructure development, mm-hmm. and then once it you know gets up and running, I think it will take off. But the idea is that we want to be um, really looking at both uh, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen opportunities um, at the same time but recognizing that the um, initial stage of hydrogen fuel development will likely be from blue hydrogen that's mm-hmm. where we're that's where we're at
1: mm-hmm. okay so we talked a little bit about the transition what is the accelerator piece of uh, transition transition accelerator what is, what is uh...
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it's very, and I think very um, very simply this idea that uh, we, we need to move more quickly to get where we need to get to. And so all of this is, and I would use, again, the hydrogen as an example, um, you know, there's a, a lot of people out there for, you know, legitimate reasons saying we should never produce blue hydrogen, we should only, you know, produce green hydrogen. Um, but by the time we wait for the cost curve to come down on the production of green hydrogen, yeah. it's going to take too long and we won't have a hydrogen infrastructure. Yep. So we're accelerating the use of hydrogen by starting to build the infrastructure today, by understanding the, the entire value chain of the hydrogen economy and figuring out which pieces need to be built first and how they get built. Mm. Um, and working with, again, working with the trucking companies, the fuel cell companies, the government of Alberta has been very supportive of this work. Um, you know the natural gas companies, electricity companies, basically you know big consortium, and um, uh, and it's through those kinds of mechanisms that we are really accelerating the transition mm-hmm. to uh, a new low carbon fuel.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So success and what does success look like? If you're in government, success looks like getting reelected. Yeah. If you're in business, <laughs> success looks like your you know, return on investment. What does success look like uh, from your your perspective uh, as as chair of the transition? Segment?
0: Yeah, I think for us, it's, you know, we're, we, are, um, we are very focused on um, getting our emission reductions. And I would say, well, having said that, really sort of shifting the paradigm away from emission reductions to these system transitions. Okay. So I think historically we've taken this approach that we need to, you know, get, you know, 30% below this amount by this date from the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And what that does is it puts you into Kind of an incremental technology mindset it's like oh we can make this a little bit more efficient right. we can capture a little bit yep. of this we can do and it's kind of like tacking things onto smokestacks or you know making boilers more efficient stuff like that mm-hmm. um when you get into a um a net zero transition frame uh, of thinking you realize that we actually have to eliminate specific uses, end uses. And that means you have to create a new energy system to deliver whatever that end use was. So mm-hmm. it's not, it's no longer making that gasoline, you don't talk; you don't hear anyone talking about fuel standards anymore, right? It's how yeah. quickly do we get to electric vehicles? Yep. And that was a pretty quick shift. It, really quick shift, yep. yeah. And so same with buildings. It's not so much just, um, again, and I've spent, you know, most of my career working on building efficiency. But it's the recognition that if we're going to do a building retrofit, we need to be making the building more efficient and replacing the uh, the, uh, the heating system, mm-hmm. and that's a whole different, complex, expensive thing. But that's where we need to be thinking. And same with um, you know, same with something like uh, like like hydrogen fuel. It's not just making the diesel trucks more effective. It's figuring out how to create an entirely new. Fuel system, fuel delivery, you know, production, distribution, storage system, as well as um, uh, uh, building all new trucks. Mm-hmm. Like it's, mm-hmm. like it, you know. It's, frankly, when you think about it, it's, it's. We're still, it's still a monumental challenge. Yes, it's quite daunting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but what it does, I think, what the net zero framework does, and what the transition accelerator's way of thinking does, is make you realize that the decisions you make today need to be looking at net zero in 2050. It's yes. no longer this incremental emission yep. reduction approach. Yep. And so that means um, just a very different way of operating. And that's really, for us, success is seeing you know more people recognizing that, more organizations, businesses, governments aligning themselves around that kind of uh, systems change thinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that being the case, how do you feel about our odds of meeting in 2050? net zero economy
2: wide target?
0: Yeah, I, um, uh, I'm feeling a little better about 2050 than 2030. That's, really like, <laughs> so far, that's where I wanted to go. I so want to yeah. about 2050 and then
1: 2035 yeah. and then 2030.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, and mm-hmm. it's always easier to be optimistic about something that's that it's far in the way. future. Yeah. Um, it is, I mean, unfortunately, uh, I do feel that Again, you know, having worked on a climate change paper in 1992, mm-hmm. that you know we've basically missed a lot of opportunity, wasted a lot of time, and wasted a lot of money in 30 years. And um, so the reality is, it you know it takes, I in fact all all of the work that I've done, it usually takes 10 years for any big idea to actually come to fruition. And so we're in 2022. There's some big ideas being presented today. Um, really tough to imagine that they're actually going to be delivered in 2030 mm-hmm. but we but but if anyone starts to think oh well maybe 2030 we're not going to meet our target so we can relax a bit that's the wrong thinking yeah. we need we need to have i think the 2030 targets where there are to really push us very hard and the measure can't be whether we made it in 2030 or not. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Mm-hmm. It's whether we've gotten ourselves on the pathway to 2050 by yeah. 2030. Yeah. And it's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of money, a lot of new thinking, and a lot of smart people to get us to uh, to that point in 2030. I think 2035 is going to look pretty good, mm-hmm. and I think 2050 will be doable. 2030, but it's eight years. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even, I mean, you know, in this business, Francis, I was saying to someone, so it's like you look at electricity system, so eight years. So, okay, year one, we, de- we redesign everything. Mm-hmm. Year two, we get everyone to agree. Year three, we do all the approvals. Year uh-huh. four, we start building. Like, what?
1: Yeah, that's, of course, uh, it's just four years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: it takes 10 years for each one of those steps, Absolutely. typically. Absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, so we need some um, some serious uh, reality checks around what it means, but but by no means does it mean, therefore we should you know not take them seriously. So absolutely. that's that's th- absolutely that's the crux you know yeah. of this right now, and I think that's the maybe slight um, um, you know uh, what's the uh, that's the word anyway. Um, you know, kind of the the intellectual inconsistency, Mm -hmm. like the cognitive dissonance, that's what I'm looking for. The cognitive dissonance that some of us are having right now. is like we really have to say we're going to get where we need to get to in 2030, even if deep down we know it's going to be very, very hard.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One thing I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast is uh, for a book recommendation. Um, And we we add it to our our Flux Capacitor Book Club, our, our reading list. And so um, for you, Bruce, what would that book be that you would recommend that the listener pick up and read?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I imagine I've, I read The Grid, but I imagine other people have mm-hmm. yep. used that book. Um, so I'm, uh, I read uh, Chernobyl. Oh. And that was fascinating. And okay. given the... Unfortunate circumstances underway in Ukraine today. Um, I thought that might be uh, an interesting book to think of. It gives it gives again, maybe sort of consistent as well with our interview today. Um, uh, extraordinary insights into the the science and technology of the Russian nuclear uh, program, right? And also extraordinary insights into the politics of Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be eye opening for anybody given anyone interested in electricity, but also anyone um, uh, watching what's going on in the world right now. It is a fascinating book. Okay. Incredibly well-researched. Chernobyl. Chernobyl. I think it's just called Chernobyl. Okay. Um, There's probably a subtitle, but... Uh, um, yeah, and we can look up. it. It's a Russian author. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll include, I'll, we'll, we'll include a link uh, yeah. to, to the book. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. It's...
0: It's a real, it's a yeah, really extraordinary right. book. You know. So, the
1: book recommendation is Chernobyl, and and with that, uh, that, that brings us to the end. Um, uh, really appreciate the, the 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 opportunity to chat and get a better sense of what uh, the accelerator has been working on and. It's, it's great to do uh, this live and face-to-face. Uh, yes, as yeah, as no. yeah, very
0: much so. Yeah, I yeah. know I really appreciate it, I, I thought yeah. you
1: were just two dimensions. Uh, oh, yeah. Now you're, you know, you're not <laughs> yeah, just a face yeah. on the screen. Yeah, yeah, Thanks exactly. very much for joining the podcast. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. This episode of the podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca which includes links to some of the books mentioned on this episode. And while you're there, check out the Book Club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests of the Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of the podcast, which will include another conversation recorded in person at Globe Forum 2022 with Jason Dion of the Canadian Climate Institute. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter and at electricity.ca.